my message, and I'm trying to find my starting place, and it's sitting right in front of me, and I'm reading from it, actually. I don't have an opening passage today. That's the thing, and I've told you to turn to Colossians, so that's what I was actually supposed to be looking for. But we do. We're glad that the Lord Jesus Christ is elevated at at least one time of the year. Then we look at Easter, and sometimes we see that as well. But, boy, there's a concerted effort to kind of remove Christ from Christmas, isn't there? And uh, I noticed that uh, they don't play much of the Christmas music even anymore. Uh, you go places, and you're like, what? Where's the Christmas music? And uh, especially the, the, the older stuff that does speak of Mary and, and the manger and Christ's birth. And I, that, that does uh, concern me. It's, it's uh, unfortunate. And it is just another uh, mark of our culture, our society, and the direction that we're going, an anti-God culture. Someone says, no, I don't think we're anti-God. Well, you're not looking at what I'm seeing. All we have to do is look around us and we see the, the emphasis on rejecting God and neglecting God and, and, and telling God to get out. It's sad today. It really is sad. It's too bad. What made our nation great was the influence that God and His Word had in our, our, our lives, in our homes, in our relationships. And we're do, desperately trying to remove God from all aspects of our life, our society, and our culture. And unfortunately, I mean, the fact that you're here today proves that you want to include God that you're interested in those things and you're interested in Him, and I, I commend you for that. But unfortunately, that's not always the case today. And uh, as we move closer to Christmas, let us use this as an opportunity to, uh, to, to invite people to God's house. Use it as an opportunity to bring up the, the issue of the Lord Jesus Christ because people are a little more sensitive to those things at this time of year than at any other time, I believe. Now, um, <clears throat> the truth today is that even believers... Um, I mean, well, the question, I guess we should say, is uh, often the question arises, did Jesus really exist? You know, when you start thinking about uh, Christmas and, and, you know, people ask you, well, do you really believe Jesus actually lived? Do you really believe Jesus existed? At, you know, the biblical Christ, did, did he really live? Did he, was he on earth? Um, was there really a person named Jesus Christ? or was he, And was he indeed the Son of God even? I mean, that, that, those are all good questions, I believe. And... Um, the truth today is that even believers are often tempted to doubt the reality of their Savior. It's a sad thing, but we, we are tempted to, to start questioning ourselves, our beliefs, our faith, our Bible, our Savior Himself. We need to be very aware of the influence that the world has in our lives. The world has a very strong pull, and if we're not careful, even the most faithful believers can be negatively affected by the ungodly views of this world. So we have to be very careful. Their philosophies can infect our hearts unless we take action. And in the book of Colossians here, we have a passage that I think addresses that issue. It says in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, <clears throat> Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Beware, he says, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Well, I'll tell you what, the world has some tremendous power and influence. I mean, they have the, the, the most uh, uh, elaborate media system. They have the ability to, uh, you know, send their philosophies, their ideologies, their, their, their thinking across the airways, whether it be through radio and television and through the, the web and all of those different things. And then the attitudes and the perspectives and the worldview of so many people is made available to us. And we are bombarded with opinions and, and philosophies and ideologies that never before were we really influenced by. 
It used to be that our parents were the great influencers. It used to be that maybe our peers were the great influencers, our teachers at school, and unfortunately sometimes they still are. And I mean that in a sense that often the school system does not reflect a biblical worldview, but instead a worldview. We need to be very careful of what we're allowing in our hearts, what we're allowing in our minds, because it affects how we view our world and how we view our relationships and our responsibilities even within that context of God-ordained roles and responsibilities. Over the next three weeks, because I realized that these kind of questions, did Jesus really exist? I mean, did he really walk the face of the earth? Uh, Was he a, a historical being, person? Those kind of questions will arise. I thought over the next three weeks I would address that issue from three perspectives. Number one, we'll look at the Word of God proves Christ's existence. And then next week, we're going to look at the writers. Writers prove Christ's existence. And then the last week, we're going to look at the witness proves Christ's existence. Now, what we're going to look at next week is we're going to take a look at certain historical writers and figures through history and some of the writings that they had and how they point to Christ and prove His existence. Then we're going to look the last week. We're going to note, as I say, uh, this element of the witness, the witness proving the existence of Christ what men and women allowed or endured, I should say, through the years that has to say he was real, I wouldn't have given my life the way I did or lived the way I did otherwise. And we're going to look at that side of it. But today, we want to look at the Word of God itself. Now, we're going to begin with a word of prayer and then we'll jump right in. We don't have a lot of time. We don't have much at all. So I may have to cut pieces and paste pieces. That's what I was doing up here. If you saw me scribbling, I was cutting out already because I want to be out on time. I don't want to hold you any longer than normal. I want us to glean what we can in this short time from the Word of God, something that proves to us will help us to understand that this book is indeed His Word, and Jesus Christ did indeed live and was who He claimed to be. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to You. We need You. We love You. We just ask for Your leadership today. Father, work in our hearts now, and Lord, may You be glorified. And Lord, in this place, we know that, Father, the Word of God is clear, that Every man, boy, every woman, girl, every person that is born into this world that we call, into this, 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 just this existence called mankind, is born with sin and needs to be addressed. That sin has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with. Thank you for dying on Calvary for us. Thank you for paying the price for our sin. But Lord, people need to believe and know that you are the answer first. We know, but others need to know. Help us, Father, to be more equipped, better prepared to maybe help people in this area. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, first of all, we need to understand the root problem when it comes to this issue. People say things like, well, did Jesus really exist? Is the Word of God true? Is the Word of God true? And, And what makes the Bible really real and all of those things? I want you to realize the real root problem. The root problem is not unbelief, uh, excuse me, is, it's, it's unbelief and it is not ignorance. Now, it's important to realize this. It's very important. See, God tells us in no uncertain terms that the root problem is not that non-believers, um, it's, it's not the view of the book, the view of the Bible. That's really the problem. That's not the problem. Is the Word of God true? Is it true? Well, it's the view of the author that's the problem. It's not the Bible that they really doubt. It is the author. That's the root problem. 
That's the real issue that has to be addressed. God himself. See, all, all people, whether you understand this or not, already know that God exists. People already know he exists because he's clearly seen in his creation. He's clearly seen in, it, in the moral laws. It's written in their hearts and on their hearts according to the word of God. Look a view at Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at two verses in the book of Romans that proves this fact. Someone says, no, I don't believe what you just said. I don't believe that creation itself proves there's a God. Well, God says it does. God says that he is very, very clearly revealed in his creation. You cannot look around you. You cannot see the marvel of creation without thinking about the marvelous God that created it. Amen. Notice what it says here in Romans 1.20. It says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He says the invisible things even of the creation, things that we cannot see with our 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 eyes or touch with our hands, those things are clearly seen by the creation itself. Even God himself is made clear through his own creation. And he says that that is a truth that we must embrace in this room. See, you as a believer, if you are a believer, must understand that when someone says, is there a God, uh, when someone says, is the word of God true, that it isn't a matter of a lack of information. It is a matter of a lack of faith a lack of belief. It's a heart problem, not an intellectual problem. Because, see, there is already proof and evidence, even in the very creation of God, that He exists. Therefore, when a man says, I don't believe in God, it is a heart problem that he has, not an intellectual. Prove to me that God exists. Do I need to really prove that there's a God? Who in their right mind could possibly think that this did just indeed come into existence? Who that has any real, and I mean, I'm not trying to be, be combative, I'm not trying to be, but who in the world is honestly going to believe what we were taught in school that just one day matter happened to come into existence and blew up and created what we now see and experience and feel and touch? Who in their right mind, and I, I'm not trying to be negative, they will say the same thing about us. But the fact is, is that they're saying that matter came into existence without any help at all. It just happened. Nothing just happens. Common sense, we know that doesn't just happen. I mean, you don't just take a pile of wood and throw it into the middle of a yard and a house pops up. I mean, and you say, well, if it took billions of years, it would. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. We know this. Creation is evidence that there is a God. There's a God, and for us who are believers, we must believe what God tells us about this truth. And therefore, when we're dealing with those that do not know, we must understand this is not a matter of, I've got to find the latest information. I've got to somehow get into the greatest, most archaeological dig. I've got to somehow prove that there's an ark actually on Ararat. I've got to somehow prove them that the walls of Jericho did indeed fall out. I've got, no, you don't have to necessarily. We have a book, it's called the Word of God. And it's so imperative. As a matter of fact, he says that in Romans 2.15, as we'll continue with this, he says, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile, excusing or else excusing one another. Talking about literally the clarity of his creation, the clarity of his moral law. Those things tell us and point to a real God that actually exists. He says, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience 
also bearing witness. Someone says, I have a child and he has no conscience. There is a reason if he claims to have no conscience. There's something that went awry. He had a parent that was a drug addict. Something got screwed up in his DNA. Somehow something went wrong, desperately wrong, that man caused. In the creation, God said that man would have a conscience. That conscience would cause him to know that there is a moral right and wrong. It may be different in different cultures, but there is still that understanding that there's a moralness to life. There's something that's bigger than self. And it's proof that there's a God. Men and women, however, suppress or they hold down the truth in unrighteousness, the Bible says. Because their proud hearts are rebellious. We're prideful. We're arrogant. We don't want to submit to the truth. We don't want to believe the truth. We don't want to have to admit there's a God. Because then we'd have to actually do what He says. In Romans 1.18, we find this passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that they don't know or have the truth. They, don't, they hold it in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. They don't want to deal with the truth. They don't want to have to face the truth. There is a God in heaven today. And His very creation proves it. The moral law written in our hearts proves it. In Romans 1.21, the Bible says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Again, it's so important to realize that at one point, the world had received the gospel. They knew who God was. They chose to, to suppress the truth, to hold it in unrighteousness, to deceive themselves and others. But the Word of God and the presence and the reality of God is clearly seen in His creation and in that law written in our hearts. You know, when people reject the Bible's historical accounts, especially when we consider the creation or the flood Peter says that they are willfully ignorant of these things. In Peter chapter 3, verse 5, it says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. They, were, they willingly are ignorant. A man chooses not to believe the truth. He must choose to deny the, 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 the character of God as he views creation. He has to literally make a decision and say, well, it's up to you to prove that there's a God. God's already proven it. But again, we spend so much time trying to come up with these answers. And, I, and I'm all for it. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks, we're going to spend a few more minutes now today and then next week and the week after to give a little bit of ammunition, if you will. But I want you to understand that the greatest source of proof that God exists and that the Word of God is true is the Word of God itself. I believe that it's a mistake often to pursue people that have these opinions or are looking for all this information as simply a lack of knowledge. They just lack knowledge. If they only had more facts, if they only had more information, they would be won over. No, that's not true. Again, it's not an information problem, but a heart problem. 
And I want you to understand that in your life it is the same. In my life it's the same. We have all the information we need. But we must allow that to to take hold in our heart, to grip our hearts. It's not enough to just know the truth. We must truly embrace the truth, love the truth. See, the Bible itself is the ultimate proof of both itself and its claims. Jesus made it clear that the Bible gives enough information so that everyone can know the truth and that there's no other resource that's any better than it. In Luke chapter 16, verse 31, we know that the rich man ended up in hell. And, and he, he's worried about his brothers, we know. And Jesus gives him this, uh, the, 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 the Abraham says, if they, excuse me, if they hear not, the Lord says, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Abraham says, listen, listen, I, I hear you. I know you're concerned about your family, but if, if you want proof, Okay, we could send somebody from the dead, but I'm going to tell you something now. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, that's the word of God now. Because see, in that day, Moses and the prophets had already lived. Moses and the prophets had already died. All they had was a recording of what took place and transpired, and we have it today called the word of God in the Old Testament. He said, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. We're looking for all this evidence to try to somehow convince people that God is real and that the word of God is true, when in reality, we have it already. It's right here. We spend too much time trying to help let science prove our point that God is real instead of letting God prove himself real. If we know our Bible better... The Holy Spirit of God will use the Word of God to convict the heart of man. And the heart is the real problem. We do not know our Bibles. And therefore, we do not know how to direct a man or a woman into the Word of God sufficiently to draw out his sin and ultimately make him face reality that he is lost without Christ and in need of a Savior. Jesus' words provide us, or should I say, in this passage, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. His words in that passage provide us with a universal truth that the Bible is and should be our most persuasive tool. Now, the Bible says, so then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You want to instill faith in a person? The best source to do that is the Word of God. Over the years as a society, we have tried to build a moral foundation without any absolute truth. We've we've struggled. We've tried so desperately. See, discarding the Bible, trusting in the good of all man, how's that worked out for us? It's not working too well. And when you consider ultimate questions, is there a God? Questions like that. Everyone must sooner or later appeal to an ultimate standard. See, most often in our society, we address the ultimate questions by appealing to higher and higher standards. We just kind of go from one to the other, trying to come to a final conclusion. We follow a trail of PhDs or new research or discoveries or trends, philosophies, or maybe even opinions. 
We keep appealing to that higher and higher standard because, you know, we're hoping that one day we arrive at the place where the answer is finally found. But you know want to know something? Those stairs ultimately end. Sooner or later, you have to arrive at the top. Sooner or later, there must be an ultimate standard by which to answer the ultimate questions. And the Bible claims to be that ultimate standard of truth. It claims to be the word given by the Almighty Creator. The Bible, the Word of God, is true. What about the Word of God? What about it, I guess from a very logical standpoint, makes it feasible to believe that it is God's Word? Let me give you three simple thoughts. Number one, it's pedigree. It's pedigree. That's, that's not dog food. It's pedigree. I want you to know that this book, the Word of God, that we hold in our hand in the King James Bible, was written over the course of 1,600 years using over 40 different authors. Different men, we call them authors, but God is the author, but different men that penned the words that we find in this book. And still, although there are 40 different men God used to pen the pages of this book, although it took over 1,600 years, those pages flow as though they were written by one hand. Men have, women and boys and girls have raked over the pages of the Word of God, have studied the Word of God, have sought out the Word of God, and in every case, almost every case, unless they are not honest, this book has such a consistency in its content. Its composition, its consistency are examples to of the finest literature there is on earth, even to this day. In 2 Peter 1.21, the Bible says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Literally, those 40 men that God used to pen the Word of God, as He used them as instruments. The Bible says they were moved by the Holy Ghost. One moving force. Literally, they became a pen in the hand of God and God simply wrote what He wanted for you and for me. What He wanted for that generation thousands of years ago and the same generation that we now live in today. People say, but it's an archaic book. Really? It's no longer practical? Is that what you're saying? Do you really believe that? Have you really bought into the pack of lies that says that book is too archaic, that it's no longer practical, that it doesn't, it doesn't meet the need of today? This book addresses marriage. It addresses raising children. It addresses relationships between husbands and wives. It addresses every major issue you can even fathom, think about, and all others through principle at least. It may not say, thus saith the Lord in every single case, but it does indeed provide us principles by which to govern our lives. And those principles, however old they may appear, in the eyes of scientists and philosophers and psychologists, May I say they are as pertinent, as practical, and as powerful today as they have ever been. It's pedigree, where it came from. But number two, it's prophecies. It's prophecies. Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible, and about 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled to the letter. No errors. Let's consider one of those prophecies. In approximately 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ, Micah 
one of his minor prophets, named the tiny village of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. Turn, if you would, to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'll give you 20 minutes to find it. Trust me. Right now, I'm freaking out. Did you get there yet? I, I lucked out and found it, I think, here. Micah 5, 2. Notice what it says in Micah 5, 2. If you haven't found it, we'll just read one verse. Now gather thyself in troops. Oh, it, yeah, there it is. But thou, Bethlehem, verse 2, Euphrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall, be, shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. A direct prophecy of Christ and his coming. The Messiah and his coming. Messiah and Christ being one. Notice again, thou Bethlehem, Euphrata. Very specific prophecy, 700 years before Jesus Christ ever was born. Before we ever went to an inn and sought a room. Before we ever saw him in a manger. Before we ever saw the, 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 the shepherds race into town looking to see the one the angel had told them of. 700 years before the manger scene ever took place, it was prophesied that he would be born in that small little village. The fulfillment of that prophecy in the birth of Christ is one of the most widely known, it is one of the most widely celebrated facts in history because Jesus Christ did come and he was born in Bethlehem. And we celebrate it to this day. The probability of chance, the probability of that fulfillment taking place was a 1 in 10 to the 5th power. Meaning 1, 10 with 5 zeros behind it. That's a lot. That's a pretty high percentage. That's a pretty, high prob a pretty low probability. Isn't that amazing? 1 in 10 to the fifth power. That's a lot, a very small, very small window. I don't know about you, but if someone said to me, you have a one in five, a one in 10 to the fifth power chance of winning a hundred bucks if you put your dollar in, I'd probably say, that's okay, I'll keep my dollar because I'm not going to win then. Unfortunately, there are some pretty high odds with the What's that called? The Ohio Lottery? And unfortunately, many people play that too. But then again, those chances aren't even nearly as high. You have more of a chance of winning that than you would this taking place over the course of 700 years. Now, amazing. I'll tell you what, one more. Let's talk about another one. In the 5th century B.C., a prophet named Zechariah declared that the Messiah would be betrayed for the price of a slave. The price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. Again, according to the Jewish law, and also uh, it said that this money would be used to buy a burial ground. It would be used to buy a burial ground for Jerusalem's poor, or foreigners that came that didn't have any money. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 13 attests to that. Bible writers, and even, even other historians, secular historians even, both record 30 pieces of silver as being the sum that was paid to Judas Iscariot when he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, interestingly enough, they also indicate, even the secular writers in history, 
that the money went to purchase what was called the potter's field. It was used for the exact purpose that was predicted. Isn't that amazing? It was exactly the way God had prophesied it. Do you know what the probability of chance, the probability of chance fulfillment of that particular prophecy was? It was 1 in 10 to the 11th power. Not 5th, but 11th. 11 zeros behind the 1. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. When we consider the reality or the proof that this book is real, we cannot, we cannot dismiss prophecies or predictions that are put in this book. Over 2,500 of them, 2,000 of which at least have come to pass in fulfillment. Nostradamus gets how much play on television every once in a while because he made a couple of predictions. Most of his, they do not tell you this, did not come to pass. But a few did. Do you know what God did with prophets that made mistakes? He told them to be killed. Because God said, my word is 100% accurate, and if you're really a prophet of mine, you'll never miss. It's pedigree, it's prophecies, and finally, it's preservation. It's preservation. Second Timothy, turn there if you would please, chapter 3, verse 16. We're almost done. Second Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. We read a passage, and it goes like this. Second Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, we talked earlier about the pen. Um, the men that wrote, 40 men over 1,600 years, pen in the hands of God. Just literally the pen that God used. The Bible says that that process that God used was inspiration. You'll not get any debate from any theologian. You'll not get any debate from any group around the world that believes the Word of God is the Word of God. They'll all say the same thing, that God's Word is true in the originals. It's without error in the originals. It's without error in the originals. What they're saying is when it was first written, inspired of God, it was exactly what God wanted. They all agree. The problem is they deviate at that point and say, then man took over and messed it all up. So the Bible you hold in your hand is not 100% accurate because it's had to travel through time and men have gotten in and messed it all up. And as a result of that, you have a good semblance of what it was, but not a perfect resemblance of it. Well, turn if you would to the book of Psalm, chapter 12, would you please? One of the great proofs that God's Word is indeed His Word is that He preserved His Word. This is still His book, and He doesn't need you, and He doesn't need me to keep it pure. Oh, I know men and women have given their lives through the years to continue the Word of God and to keep it in society and our culture. But listen, God is capable and qualified to preserve, to keep His Word from corruption. Notice what He says here in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. Excuse me, Psalms 6 and 7. I'm sorry, 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. Again, Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. 
as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Hold on, who's writing? The psalmist. The psalmist lived in 1000 AD, uh, BC, excuse me. There were books that were already written. The books of Moses were already written. Now, he has a book in his hand that are copies. They're not originals. They're not originals. If something's four or five, six hundred years old, how many, how many people got the originals? No. The psalmist is writing saying, okay, I've got this book. They're pure words. And what I have is a copy. It's pure. Hold on. How, how's this work? He goes on. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. He says, listen, that book's pure. What I hold in my hand, it's just a copy too, but it's pure, and it'll be kept pure by you for every generation. See, a person that says that the Bible is with error is a person that doesn't believe God's big enough to keep it without error. A person that says that this book is not 100% accurate in God's eyes, and, and he does have a, a text, a manuscript that is pure. Oh, I know there are some out there that have been tainted and tattered and beaten and battered. I realize that man has gotten his eyes and his ears and his eyes and I mean his, um, his intellect involved in it and tried to correct God's word. I know all that and I could look at it with you and we could all sit around and talk about how Eusebius, although he's considered a great church leader, got in there and made his own copies of the Bible and decided to change the word of God as it was written and all of those things. I understand all that, but here's the point. God did preserve a a document. God preserved a, um, a certain uh, line of manuscripts that he has preserved through the ages. And we have them with us today. And let me tell you, the book I hold in my hand in the King James Bible, I am, I'm confident it is without error. Someone says, well, I'll show you an error in it. Show me the error, please. But the fact is, is this. It is a book without error. It is a book that tells me how to get to heaven. If there's an error in any area of this book, then how can I trust that Jesus was who he claimed to be at all? I'm telling you, I hold in my hand God's word, and it is true, and I can believe it, and God has preserved it through the years. Look at all the people that have given their lives through the years to try to preserve this book or to keep it in circulation. Consider that it was written thousands of years before Christ ever came, that there were pieces and parts added to it over 1,600 years, and yet today we hold in our hand a book that is still, if they add them all together, is a bestseller. That's amazing to me. That's amazing. What other piece of literature has that kind of review, that kind of uh, time spent on it, that kind of, I guess, loyalty to it? No other book. You say, well, men have just been, men, women have just been deceived through all ages. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. There's something unique and special about this book. It is a supernatural book. And may I say today that the Word of God is the best proof that there is a God, and that that Jesus who came 2,000 years ago, that was born, in a, born and placed in a manger, who grew to be a man, lived a sinless, perfect life, who ultimately took his place willingly on that cross, receiving the nails in his hands and in his feet, the Jesus who suffered with the crown of thorns upon his head, his beard ripped out, and the cat of nine tails just literally grabbing and tearing the flesh off of his back, that Jesus died on Calvary for you today. That Jesus gave his life for you today. That Jesus suffered, bled, and died so that your sin could be washed away, and so could mine. Amen. He did indeed live. And over the next few weeks, we'll look at that even at greater length. But may I say that this book today is a living book 
And it itself is the greatest source of hope for anyone truly seeking the truth. Share Him in this book with them. Father, we come to You. We ask, Lord, for Your leadership today. Lord, I thank You for these that have gathered. We thank You for the children that shared with us earlier. But Lord, today we serve You, our God. Lord, we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we are grateful that we are forgiven if we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Thank You for the truth of Your Word, for the, for the fact that we even have it. Lord, when we read the, the Christmas story, so to speak, the account of Jesus' birth, this holiday season, this Christmas season, may we remember, Lord, that it literally took place, that Jesus Christ did come to earth and that He did die for us. And Lord, today there may be someone in this crowd who has never trusted Christ. They, they've even doubted His existence, but somehow, someway, within the depths of their soul and heart, they feel a, a wooing, a drawing, saying, you need to trust my son. You need Jesus in your life. You need me as your Savior and Lord. Lord, may they not dismiss your Holy Spirit's work in their life, but may they instead embrace it. May they settle their soul salvation. May they make up their mind to believe in a God who exists and in a Savior who lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for their sin. May they do that even today. And Lord, there'll be people available to them. You know we'll do our best to try to help people. But Lord, may we not leave here dismissing God, but instead receiving and accepting the Lord Jesus if necessary. If you know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. Why don't you settle that today if you don't? You can. You can settle it. You can make the God that created you the God that sits on the throne of your life by receiving His Son Jesus into your life. He died for you. He paid for your sin. Won't you let Him pay for it? You have to choose Him. You have to accept Him. He offers himself to you today.